world where every belief is challenged. Where do we go? You are now listening to the Truth of the Matter podcast, where the world is seen through the lens of scriptures, with your host, Jedi Milano. Okay, hello everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Truth of the Matter. And we're continuing our series today. And we're in our second episode. Today, we'll be discussing justification. We're so happy to introduce to you today our guest, Sir Richard Blaylock. So before we begin, how are you, Sir Richard? How are you doing today? Doing very well. Thank you guys so much for having me. Okay. How about my co-host right here? How are you guys doing? Jaddy, JV, and Nathan? Yeah, we're doing good, man. Actually, this is our earliest recording, but by God's grace, we woke up today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we woke up. How about you guys? Well, I'm uh, good as always, but as always, not theologically good. Yeah, I was doing well. Yeah, we woke up early because we have a very special guest, and I'm really excited for uh, the message you have later, Mr. Richard. So, yeah, I think with that, already, we can already begin. So, you can go ahead and um, share your presentation, Mr. Uh, Richard. Okay. Well, again, thank you guys so much for having me, guys, and it's an honor to be with you. and to talk a little bit about uh, the doctrine of justification. Um, this is a weighty subject. Um, in fact, uh, it's often called the doctrine on which the church either stands or falls. Um, it's been viewed by many as being a very crucial um, point of doctrine. And so um, we want to talk about it with some reverence and with some care. So as I said, um, the doctrine of justification is one that has been afforded um, really important status within the Protestant world. Um, So um, it is seen as a first order doctrine. And and what I mean by that is uh, there are certain doctrines um, that are considered to be more fundamental than others. Of course, we want our theology to be biblical always, kind of in every point. Um, But that being said, there are certain areas where disagreement can happen between Christians on certain points of doctrine. And um, that doesn't, you know, call into question a person's uh, faith, you know. So, for example, um, as you mentioned, I'm a member at a Baptist church. Um, There are other Christians who don't believe that baptism should be reserved for uh, individuals who profess faith in Christ, and instead we should be able to baptize infants of believing parents. Uh, That's a point of doctrine that people have disagreed about for a long time. Um, But, you know, among the vast majority of Protestants, we see that that point of doctrine doesn't divide between Christian and non-Christian. Right. I'm very happy to say that my Anglican brothers or my Presbyterian brothers are um, and sisters are uh, fellow servants of Christ. Um, same thing goes for doctrines like the cessation of the gifts or continuation of the gifts or your eschatology, all these sorts of things. Right. Um, that being said, there are certain points of doctrine that are more fundamental and more foundational to the Christian faith and uh, deny or reject certain points of doctrine call into question uh, whether or not someone is actually professing the Christian faith at all. So you have things like the Trinity, right? If someone were to say that I deny that God is both three and one, 
right? If someone were to say, no, God is just one and there are no three persons. Um, or if someone were to say that Jesus is not God, he's just man. Um, like those denials uh, cut to the heart of what it means to be, you know, a Christian. Um, and so those points of doctrine are much more at the foundation of our faith. And so departures at those points are much more significant. Well, from the Reformation onwards, Protestant Christians have said that justification belongs in that particular category of doctrine. That justification is foundational to the Christian confession. It's foundational to our understanding of who God is. It's foundational to our understanding of the gospel. Right. And so um, I'll read you guys some quotes. Um, so Luther, uh, he called justification the first and chief article and the central article of our teaching. He went on to say, if we lose the doctrine of justification, we lose simply everything. He also says the proper subject of theology is man guilty of sin and condemned and God, the justifier and savior of, the, of man, the sinner. Whatever is asked or discussed in theology outside the subject is error and poison, right? So for Luther, justification, how it is that sinful human beings can stand in a right relationship with God. This is at the heart of theology proper for him. And this is at the heart of what it means to be a Christian. Calvin makes a similar uh, argument. He says, this referring to justification is the main hinge on which religion turns. For unless you first of all grasp what your relationship to God is and the nature of his judgment concerning you, you have neither a foundation on which to establish your salvation, nor one on which to build piety toward God. So for Calvin, justification is the foundation for true religion. It's the foundation for how someone is saved, how someone comes in the right relationship with God and pursuing godliness is itself founded on a proper understanding of justification. Um, in recent years, other thinkers, evangelical thinkers, have made similar claims like Al Mohler, Wayne Grudem, Gavin Ortland, Michael Allen. Um, they've made similar claims about the importance of justification. So with, that, with all that said, how then should we understand this doctrine, right? What should we believe about the doctrine of justification? What is the nature of justification? What is it that God does when he justifies someone? And what is necessary for a person to be justified? I'm sure you guys are aware that over the history of the church, there have been many different answers uh, presented to these questions. And today, there are still a variety of answers that are presented to this, uh, this question. Um, and so we wanna take care to see what the Bible has to say. Um, I'm first going to present what I think to be um, the biblical understanding of the doctrine. Some people call this the Lutheran perspective on justification. Some people call it the Reformed perspective on justification. These uh, names are not all that accurate, but um, that's what people refer to it as. And so I'll just call it that the Lutheran perspective on justification. I personally think, and I'll show why I think this, I think this is the biblical presentation of what um, it means to be justified and what God does when he justifies sinners. So in what follows, I'm going to first describe the Lutheran perspective, and then I'll talk about some other perspectives. We'll look to the Bible. If we have time, um, we'll go beyond Paul. 
Um, I think we're going to camp out in Paul and we're probably going to run out of time. But uh, that's kind of the overview of where we're going. So with that said, what is this Lutheran understanding of justification? I'm going to read some sample definitions and then I'll highlight nine key characteristics of this perspective on justification. So sample of definitions and descriptions. Calvin, in talking about justification in the Institutes, has this to say. He says, He is said to be justified in God's sight, who is both reckoned righteous in God's judgment and has been accepted on account of his righteousness. He is justified, who is reckoned in the condition not of a sinner, but of a righteous man. And for that reason, he stands firm before God's judgment seat while all sinners fall. Justified by faith is he who, excluded from the righteousness of works, grasps the righteousness of faith through grasps the righteousness of Christ through faith, and clothed in it, appears in God's sight, not as a sinner, but as a righteous man. Therefore, we explain justification simply as the acceptance with which God receives us into his favor as righteous men, and we say that it consists in the remission of sins and the imputation of Christ's righteousness. Right, so this is kind of a long quote. Um, there are key aspects of this that he's pointing out, like he's pointing out that justification has two aspects, the remission of sins, the imputation of Christ's righteousness. We'll get back to this later. He makes very clear that justification is by faith. It's not by works. Justification has to do with a declaration that God makes regarding our status. Um, so these are some of the key points. We'll come back to this again when we summarize, right? So this is Calvin's perspective. Um, we have the 1559 French Confession of Faith, um, which is a confession of faith that uh, Calvin uh, contributed to along with Beza and some other uh, reformers. So Article 17, we believe that by the perfect sacrifice that the Lord Jesus offered on the cross, we are reconciled to God and justified before him. For we cannot be acceptable to him, nor become partakers of the grace of adoption, except as he pardons all our sins and blots them out. Thus we declare that through Jesus Christ we are cleansed and made perfect. By his death we are fully justified, and through him only can we be delivered from our iniquities and transgressions. And then Article 18. We believe that all our justification rests upon the remission of our sins, in which also is our blessedness, as saith the psalmist. We therefore reject all other means of justification before God, and without claiming any virtue or merit, we simply rest in the obedience of Jesus Christ, which is imputed to us as much to blot out all our sins as to make us find grace and favor in the sight of God. And in fact, we believe that in falling from this foundation, however slightly, we could not find rest elsewhere, but should always be troubled. For as much as we are never at peace with God till we resolve to be loved in Jesus Christ, for of ourselves, we are worthy of hatred. So again, you see similar themes coming up of justification having to do with the pardon of our sins, our justification having to do with our resting in the obedience of Jesus Christ, uh, it being tied to the death uh, of Jesus, the cross work of Jesus. Um, these are very key elements um, in the Lutheran perspective of, on justification. Uh, the Westminster Shorter Confession of Faith says, justification is an act of God's free grace, wherein he pardoneth all our sins and accepted us, accepteth us as righteous in his sight, 
only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. Right, so that's a more succinct definition. Uh, the Westminster Longer Confession says, Those whom God effectually calleth, he also freely justifieth, not by infusing righteousness into them, but by pardoning their sins and by accounting and accepting their persons as righteous, not for anything wrought in them or done by them, but for Christ's sake alone, nor by imputing faith itself, the act of believing, or any other evangelical obedience to them as their righteousness, but by imputing the obedience and satisfaction of Christ unto them, they receiving and resting on him and his righteousness by faith, which faith they have not of themselves, it is the gift of God. So, again, very similar themes. Here, he, uh, the framers of the Westminster Confession, they posture, they, they put their view of justification up against a different view, right? The infusion of righteousness, where they're, they're saying clearly, this is not what justification is. Justification is not God um, filling us with uh, righteousness or righteous character, transforming our character from being sinful to being righteous. That's not what uh, justification is. Instead, it's an act of imputation. Right? So, Charles Hodge, um, his view of justification, he says, justification is an act and not as sanctification, a continued and progressive work. It is an act of grace to the sinner. In himself, he deserves condemnation when God justifies him. As to the nature of the act, it is in the first place not an efficient act or an act of power. It does not produce any subjective change in the person justified. It does not affect the change of character, making those good who were bad, those holy who were unholy. That is done in regeneration and sanctification. In the second place, it is not a mere executive act, as when a sovereign pardons a criminal and thereby restores him to his civil rights or to his former status in the commonwealth. In the third place, it is a forensic or judicial act, the act of a judge, not of a sovereign. That is, in the case of the sinner, it is an act of God, not in his character of sovereign, but in his character of judge. It is a declarative act in which God pronounces the sinner just or righteous. That is, declares that the claims of justice, so far as he is concerned, are satisfied, so that he cannot be justly condemned, but is in justice entitled to the reward promised or due to perfect righteousness. Right. So you see certain emphases in Hajj wanting to make it very clear that this is an act that God does, not just in his um, capacity as king of the universe, not in his capacity as being just sovereign, the sovereign uh, ruler of all things, but specifically in his capacity as a judge. Um, this is a legal act um, or a forensic act. It's a declaration that all the requirements of righteousness and justice have been satisfied with regard to this particular person. Right, so that's Hodge. And then more recently, Grudem, Wayne Grudem, he says, justification is an instantaneous legal act of God in which he thinks of our sins as forgiven and Christ's righteousness as belonging to us and declares us to be righteous in his sight. Right, so this is just a sampling. We can expand this, extrapolate this many times more. Um, but I think a kind of helpful way of summarizing it is to say that justification refers to that forensic act of God whereby he forgives a person of all their sins and declares them to be righteous in his sight on the basis of Christ's death and resurrection. 
Justification is not transformative, it is not progressive, and it is not revocable. Instead, justification is God's legal declaration that is forever binding and that takes place the moment a person exercises faith in Christ for their salvation. All right, so that's kind of a uh, mouthful. Um, so we'll try to break down what we've discussed or what we're seeing these common themes through um, the Lutheran definition of justification, and we can break it down into nine key components. All right, so there are nine key components of uh, this perspective on justification, right? The first is that justification has two aspects, the forgiveness of sins and the imputation of Christ's righteousness, right? We've seen this kind of repeated through those definitions, many of them highlighting this, that uh, justification consists in this. It consists in one, all of a person's sins are forgiven, meaning God no longer holds them accountable for the sins that they've committed. Two, not only that, right, not only are their sins wiped away and then they're just treated as though they're like neutral, uh, neutral moral characters, but Christ's righteousness is credited to them. And so God looks upon them as though they had fulfilled right, God's righteous standard perfectly because that's what Jesus did. Jesus was fully obedient to God's commands, to God's demands. Jesus fully um, conformed to the character of God. He expressed God's character in every thought, in every feeling, in every deed. Not only did he never sin, but he always uh, acted in pure holiness and pure righteousness. Um, and so the imputation of Christ's righteousness means not only are our sins forgiven, um, but Christ's righteousness actually now is counted as ours. Um, as being credited to us. Um, so this is kind of first big piece of the Lutheran view. Now, there are some Protestants who agree that justification refers to the forgiveness of sins, and then they'll question the imputation part. Um, but for the, for the vast majority of the, well, most within the Protestant stream still view justification as having those two parts. Right. So we don't need to get into the weeds about the discussions on imputation just yet. So that's the first thing. Key component one, justification has two aspects, forgiveness of sins and the imputation of Christ's righteousness. Key component number two, justification is forensic rather than transformative. Now, what does this mean? Forensic is another way of referring to the law court or the legal world or the judicial world. Right? It's a way of saying that this act is an act in God's capacity as a judge, which is what Hodge was um, really stressing, right? Um, so justification refers to God's legal declaration that a person is righteous in his sight on account of the work of Christ, right? Um, this is, again, think of a judge or a jury, right? When a judge or a jury proclaim that, or you know, when they come to their verdict, and say that someone is innocent, they don't make that person innocent, right? Um, their verdict does not somehow change that person's character or suddenly turn them into another kind of moral being. That's not what the function of a judge's verdict is, but what a judge's verdict or a jury's verdict uh, functions to do is to say in the eyes of this courtroom, in the eyes of, of the, the judge, this person is no longer liable 
for this particular crime. This charge against this person does not stand and he's not going to be uh, held guilty uh, of whatever it is that he was accused of. Right? And so the Lutheran perspective of justification is that this is what God is doing as well. When he declares or when someone, when he justifies someone, he is declaring that their sins are no longer going to be held against them and that in God's sight and the sight of God, the judge of all the earth, this person is going to be accounted as righteous and treated as righteous. Um, so the contrast here is with a transformative view of justification, which we'll talk about later on, which views justification as the way in which God makes an unrighteous person to actually become righteous in terms of their moral character and their um you know, their ethical, um, yeah, their ethical character, right? So, key component two, justification is forensic rather than transformative. Key component three, justification is instantaneous rather than progressive, right? This is kind of related to the previous point, right? Justification, according to the Lutheran perspective, is an event that takes place the moment that a person sincerely trusts in Jesus for their salvation, right? So it's an instantaneous event. It either happens or it doesn't happen. There aren't any degrees of being justified. It's not like God justifies you a little bit and then tomorrow he'll justify you a little bit more and then you know years from now you're super justified or something like that. Um, there's no being super justified. There's only you either are or you're not um, because it's an instantaneous, one-time event. Um, well, to be more specific, um, what uh, people will say or what theologians and scholars will say is justification is the inbreaking of God's eschatological final verdict into the present, right? So there's going to be a day when every person is going to stand before the judgment seat of God and God is going to deliver a verdict on their life. And what happens when a person is justified is that final verdict that awaits that person actually breaks into the present. Um, and so they know God's final verdict on their life, uh, the moment that they trust in Jesus um, with a sincere faith. So that is the Lutheran perspective. Again, that's different from the transform transformative perspective where um, righteousness increases in a person as they uh, partake of the sacraments, as they um, put sin to death and, you know, um, live by the Spirit or, you know, those sorts of things. Um, so, in the Lutheran perspective, justification is instantaneous rather than progressive. Justification is irrevocable. Like I mentioned, justification is viewed as the inbreaking of God's final end-time verdict in the present, in the same way that God's final end-time verdict doesn't change. A person's standing before God when they trust in Jesus will not change, right? If you've been justified, if someone has exercised a genuine faith in Christ, that person's standing will not shift because God has already delivered his verdict um, on that person. So that's point number four. We'll go through these a little bit more quickly. Point number five, justification is grounded in Christ's death and resurrection, right? In the Bible, the justification of the ungodly is described as being unjust, right? How can you say that an ungodly person is righteous? Well, the reason that God can do it and remain just is because Christ has satisfied all the requirements of justice on the part of those who are justified. 
Christ has borne their punishment in his place. All the penalties that the law, that God's holy character, that God's law require, Christ himself bore on behalf of his chosen people so that for them, the debt of sin has been fully paid. Uh, God's justice is fully satisfied um, in their regard. And so God remains just, even as he is the justifier of the ungodly who trust in Jesus, right? So justification, the reason that God is able to justify the ungodly is because of Christ's death and resurrection, right? That's point five. Point six, faith is the necessary means for justification, right? So in the Lutheran perspective, it is faith and faith alone that stands as the means by which uh, justification is received. Justification is God's gift of his righteousness. Um, we don't do anything to earn that or deserve that. In fact, it's gift character means that it cannot be earned. Um, at the same time, it is only given to those who receive it, right? Those who receive it through the means of faith. So faith is necessary for a person to be justified. Um, what that means is that there is no other way for a person to be righteous in God's sight apart from trusting Jesus Christ with a sincere faith. So faith is the means of justification. Um, it's not our works. This is something that the uh, Lutheran uh, perspective really stresses. Um, our works do not contribute um, to our righteous standing. Our, our works are not a means of earning God's acceptance or God's favor. Um, God himself uh, bestows this gift of righteousness freely uh, to those who believe and those in the Lutheran perspective, uh, Luther, not Lutheran tradition, but the, those who hold to this perspective also believe that faith is itself a gift that God gives. Right? So from beginning to end, salvation is uh, from the Lord. Um, we need to have faith to believe, or sorry, we need faith to receive this gift. God not only provides the gift, he provides the faith that we need to receive the gift. Um, so faith is the necessary means for justification. That's, um, I don't, I'm, I've lost track of how many, six maybe, whatever. Um, the next point. Faith is not meritorious, but it is instrumental, right? So while justification is through faith, it's not the case that justification is the reward of our faith, right? Our faith is not a is not what we use to purchase justification from God, right? It's an instrument. Um, it's it's not something that in and of itself deserves uh, justification as a wage. Right. So again, this is a way of stressing that faith is necessary, and yet the gift of righteousness is due to God's grace. It's based solely on Christ's death and resurrection. Right. So faith is not meritorious, but it is instrumental. Faith is itself a gift of God. This is something I already mentioned, so I won't get into that. And then lastly, faith is always accompanied and evidenced by good works. Right. So while those who hold the Lutheran perspective on justification want to stress that justification is by faith alone, they also want to stress that a true and genuine faith produces good works. Right? If a person 
does have a sincere and living faith, that person is going to actually begin to live a righteous life. That person is going to actually put sin to death. That person is going to actually follow Jesus as Lord, right? It doesn't make any sense to say, I trust in Jesus, and yet I refuse to do anything he says. Um, that's not a true faith. Um, faith is more than just agreeing to a set of facts, right? It's more than just saying, um, yes, I mentally assent that these things are true. Faith is actually an attitude, a disposition to trust in Jesus, both as one's Savior and as one's Lord. And so uh, those who've held to this view of justification have always said that, yes, it is faith alone that justifies but true faith does not remain alone, right? True faith produces good works, right? So these are nine of uh, nine points that, that describe this perspective on justification. Um, this view is different from other perspectives on justification. So I'll just give a couple Right, I'll just give three examples. We've already alluded to one. There's the transformative view of justification, which is the Roman Catholic view. There are also some within the Protestant tradition who have held this. Uh, famously, Ernst Kaseman held to a version of this transformative view of God's righteousness. Or sorry, well, yes, of God's righteousness and of justification. So let's focus on the Roman Catholic view. So the Council of Trent, um, this was in response to the Reformation back in, I think, 1547. Um, they've made some statements on justification. They say justification is not only the remission of sins, but also the sanctification and renewal of the interior man. All right. So what they're, what are they doing here? They're, they're responding explicitly to the Lutheran perspective on justification. And they're saying, no, justification is not just the forgiveness of sins. And it's not actually the imputation of Christ's righteousness. It's the renewal of the interior man. It's sanctification. It's when God changes a person's character and makes them actually righteous. That's what justification is. Um, they go on to say, when God touches man's heart through the illumination of the Holy Spirit, man himself is not inactive while receiving that inspiration since he could reject it. So this is responding to the point that faith is a gift of God. And what they're saying here is that... Um, well, yes, God is involved in, in leading people to faith, but faith is not just ultimately a gift of God. It's, it's, an, it's finally man's will is what's decisive, right? Now, those who hold to the Lutheran view, right? They do say faith is a gift of God, but they absolutely say that faith is also a voluntary choice of a human being. But what they'll say is when God chooses to give this gift to people, men freely voluntarily choose to believe, right? God is sovereign over human beings' choices. Council of Trent rejects that view, right? So the Protestant view, God is sovereign, human beings make true voluntary choices. Both of those are true at the same time. Council of Trent, human beings are decisive, right? God might want to give you a gift, the gift of faith, but you're free to reject it. And so again, this is a very different view of justification, a very different view of God's grace. Um, the catechism of the, the Catholic Church 
The grace of the Holy Spirit has the power to justify us, that is, to cleanse us from our sins and to communicate to us the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ and through baptism. Right, so a couple key differences there. Again, there's this emphasis. Justification transforms our character. It is through faith, but it's also now through baptism. Right, so how does someone get justified in the Roman Catholic Church? Yes, through faith, but through baptism. Um, is uh, where a person gets justified. Um, so, important divergences between the Roman Catholic view and the Lutheran view. According to the Roman Catholic view, justification includes sanctification. According to the Roman Catholic view, justification occurs through faith and through baptism. And then according to this view, faith is not seen as a gift from God so much. Instead, it is the result of cooperation between God and man. Right, so these are some key differences. This is the transformative view of justification. There's another view. This is more in the academy. Um, I realize we're running out of time, but we'll do this quick. More in the academy, there's something called the apocalyptic view of justification. This is the view that humanity's main problem is that we are under the powers of darkness, right? The powers of darkness are ruling over the cosmos, or they were before Christ came. And when Christ came, he saved the world, he saved humanity by dethroning these powers, these forces. And justification is just another way of referring to that. That when, when Paul says that God justifies the ungodly, he's actually using language that was being thrown around during his time. Um, and he's trying to redefine these words to refer, instead of this imputation or forgiveness of sins, he's trying to kind of um, take over this language as a way of just talking about how God has dethroned um, these uh, other evil powers. Uh, basically, it's a way of saying justification is really the establishment of the kingdom of God. Um, so that's another view. And then more, it's not so new anymore, but a popular one has been the new perspectives view of justification which is to say that justification doesn't refer so much to a person's right standing before God. It just refers to how you can tell who is a part of God's people or not. Um, so to say that um, God justifies uh, apart from works of law is just another way of saying that Gentiles can be part of God's family without actually becoming Jews. Right. So these are some of the main views there are others um but let's go to what the bible says um to see which view really accords with biblical teaching um so just a quick note about um the words that the bible uses to discuss righteousness and justification right so the english word to justify and our words for righteousness they come, are, they're translations of the same uh, two roots, right? So in Hebrew, you have the word uh, tzedek. In Greek, you have the word, well, you have a bunch of words built off of this dikaiao uh, uh, kind of root. Um, those are the ways that in Hebrew and Greek, you refer to righteousness and justification. Um, this is a little bit complicated, but basically um, there are, in Hebrew, there's a there's a form of this verb uh, tzedek in the hiphal stem. You don't need to know what that means, but there's a way there's a way in which this root is used 
to refer specifically to this legal declaration. And the Septuagint, when it translates that word into Greek, it uses the root dikaiao, which I mentioned earlier, right? The point that I want to make is that in both the Old and the New Testament, um, the word, these words refer to the forensic realm. They refer to a declaration that God is making. They don't refer to transforming someone's character. They definitely don't refer to defeating evil powers um, or simply declaring that someone is a member of the covenant family. They're, they refer specifically to an act of judgment in a courtroom. Um, there are many examples of this. I won't go through this for time's sake. Um, but it's just important to know that the language that the Bible uses and that Paul particularly picks up in Romans and Galatians um, is legal language, right? That's pretty well established. So let's look at justification by faith alone in Paul. Um, Paul clearly understood that humanity needed the gift of God's righteousness because of our sin. Right, so let's just go to the beginning of Romans, Romans chapter 1, verses 16 to 17, where Paul says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to all who believe, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, just as it is written, the righteous will live from faith. Right, so what's Paul doing here? Paul's talking about the gospel and he says that the reason that it's good news is because it reveals the gift of God's righteousness to everyone who believes, right? And so from the very, this is, most scholars will say that this is the thesis of the book of Romans, right? That Romans uh, 1, 16 to 17 gets to the heart of what it is that Paul wants to argue. And what is that heart? It's that the gospel reveals the gift of God's righteousness to everyone who believes, and then you have Paul move on to talk about why we need this gift. So from Romans 1, 18 to 3.20, Paul argues that all human beings are under God's wrath because of their sins. Romans 1, 18 to 32 focuses on the Gentile world, which Paul says is under God's wrath because of their rejection of the truth of God and their refusal to honor God, right? So the Gentiles, that's us, that's all the non-Jews. We're all under God's wrath because we have refused to honor God. We have refused to give him thanks. And so God has handed us over to our sin as an expression of his wrath. Um, and then Romans chapter 2, verse 1 to 3, verse 8, Paul turns his attention to the Jews. And he says, Jews, you're no better. You're no better. You have no advantage over the Gentiles because you also are liable to God's judgment on account of your sins. All right. It's not... Being an ethnic Jew will not help you. Having been circumcised will not help you um, because those will only be helpful if you've actually fulfilled the law, but you haven't. And so even though you judge the Gentiles as being sinners, you are hypocrites because you actually do the same things. And so you will not escape God's judgment, right? So that's chapter two, verse one to three, verse eight, three, verse nine to 18. Paul summarizes his argument. Both Jews and Greeks are under sin. And so the whole world now, basically, whether you're a Jew or a Greek, which is a way of saying everyone, because everyone is either a Jew or a Gentile. Sorry, I meant to say Jew or Gentile, right? Um, everyone is either a Jew or a Gentile. So everyone is now under sin. The whole world is liable to God's judgment because of their sin. And the law, right, which the Jews thought would spare them, 
Romans 3, 19 to 20, Paul makes clear the law does not provide any hope for justification before God, right? So Romans 3, 19 to 20, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are subject to the law so that every mouth may be shut and the whole world may become subject to God's judgment. For no one will be justified in his sight by works of the law because the knowledge of sin comes through the law, right? So there's no hope for justification before God on account of works or by relying on works, right? And so Paul here paints a very stark picture that humanity needs this gift of God's righteousness that he alluded to in Romans 1, 16 to 17, right? Everyone is under sin. We need the gift of God's righteousness. We cannot earn righteousness through works of law. In fact, through the law comes knowledge of sin is what Paul says, right? So this is one piece of Paul's theology regarding righteous, God's righteousness. Um, there's a need for the gift of righteousness in light of the problem of sin. The second, the gift of God's righteousness cannot be gained through works of law. We've actually just talked about that. Um, Romans 3, 19 to 20. Paul, when he describes how the law functions, in the case of sinners, he has very negative things to say. We won't go over all of them, um, but he says that human beings are unable to keep the law, Galatians 3.10. Um, he says that the law was not ultimately given by God as the means by which people might be justified. On the contrary, the law has a negative effect on, on sinners. Romans 4, 13 to 15, the law works wrath because it leads to transgression. Romans 5, 20, the law entered into the world so that transgression might increase. That's in gravity and in number. Romans 7, 5, the law actually functions to fuel sinful passions, right? And so God never gave the law as the means by which people would be justified because he always knew that sinners would not be spurred to righteousness by the law. Uh, now, the law has other functions, right? We don't need to get into those now, right? God has good and gracious um, purposes for the giving of the law. But one of the things that Paul points out is that the law was actually given not so much to be the means by which we are justified, but to just show how sinful we are. Um, so, Next point, God's gift of righteousness is not given to those who do the works of the law. Instead, it is freely given to all who believe in Jesus, right? So Romans 3, 21 to 24, I won't read this um, for the sake of time, but it is a wonderful passage, as I'm sure you guys know. Um, these verses make it very clear that the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Right, meaning this gift of God's righteousness, and and Romans three twenty one is talking about the gift of God's righteousness, right? That this gift is manifested, meaning it's available now, not because of the law, right? Not at all because of the law, even though the law and the prophets bear witness to it, right? Meaning the law and the prophets, in regard to their revelatory capacity, they point forward to the coming of this gift. This righteousness comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe, whether Jew or Gentile. This righteousness is given by God freely as an expression of his grace. This is something that Paul wants to emphasize over and over and over again, right? This is a free gift. God did not owe this to anyone. God could have condemned every human being and he would have been perfectly just and righteous to do so. But out of the abundance of his grace, he chose to give this gift of righteousness to undeserving sinners. Um, again, this is just an 
just a marvel of uh, God's goodness, God's glory um, that's seen in this in these passages. The righteousness of Christ is given to us through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, right? Romans 3, 21 to 24, right? So these are some key elements of Paul's thinking about this gift of God's righteousness. Romans 4, 1 to 8, right? He refers to the examples of Abraham and David in order to clarify what justification means. Um, and he notes that Abraham, the reason that Abraham can't boast before God is because he was not justified by works. Right? He was not justified because he did a lot of good things. In fact, he didn't do very many good things. But what he did do was he trusted in God's promise. And in response to that, God credited righteousness to him. Right? Paul, in fact, goes on to say that justification by works would nullify the gracious character of justification. Meaning, if God did justify on account of works, then it would not be a gracious act. It would just be a reward. Right, it would be just, but it would be a reward. Right? So, um, there's more we can say, but Paul is very clear that God's gift of righteousness is given to those who believe, not to those who work. Right, next thing Paul says, justification is grounded in Christ's death and resurrection. Again, Romans 3 21 to 26. Paul talks about how it is that God can be just and the justifier of the ungodly. And the reason he can be that is because he set forth Christ as the propitiation for our sins. The reason that God's uh, justice is not compromised when he justifies those who are actually guilty is because Jesus has borne their guilt and he has dealt with their punishment by bearing God's wrath in their place. Um, so it's Christ's death uh, that's seen as the basis of God's justif justifying act, but also Christ's resurrection. Right? In Romans 4.25, Paul says, He, that's Jesus, was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Right, So Christ died as a propitiation sacrifice, but Christ was also raised. And it's because Christ is raised that he can function as our uh, mediator now. Right, So in Romans 8.34, it talks about, well, I'll just turn there real quick. Romans 8.34 says, who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more has been raised. He also is at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. Right? So how, why is it that no one can condemn us? Well, yes, it's because Christ died for us, but it's also because Christ is now raised and he can intercede for us. He can act as our advocate, right? Like 1 John 2 says, uh, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Um, so because Jesus is raised, he now is able to intercede for the forgiveness of our sins. He's able to um, plead his, his blood on our behalf um, so that we are justified. So um, justification involves the forgiveness of sins and the crediting of righteousness. It does not involve the transformation of our persons. Romans 4, Abraham and David are good illustrations of this, right? Abraham's character wasn't changed after he um, was declared righteous, after God credited uh, righteousness to him. He remained the same. Uh, same thing is true of David. Uh, David's character wasn't changed. And when Paul is talking about them, he's bringing up their forgiveness. That's, what's, um, that's how Paul understands what God did when he justified them. Um, and then justification involves the imputation of Christ's righteousness. 
Um, we won't go into this in too much detail because we're running out of time. So Romans 5, 12 to 19, there's a, a typology, right? There's a parallel between Adam and Jesus Christ that Paul develops just as Adam's sin brought death into the world. So Christ's one act of righteousness has brought life into the world. Um, humanity is divided into those who are in Adam versus those who are in Christ. And one of the things Paul wants to say very, very clearly is just as Adam's sin made humanity all sinful, Christ's one act of righteousness resulted in the righteousness of life for those who believe him, right? And so it's through Christ's obedience that we are made or we are declared to be righteous, right? We're given this righteous status that leads to life. Um, and then there are other passages in Paul, 1 Corinthians 1.30, 2 Corinthians 5.21, that um, highlight this imputation. Um, lastly, faith, the faith we exercise, Paul clearly viewed as a gift of God. Romans 3.28, or sorry, Romans 8.28-30, the famous golden, uh, golden chain. I'll just read 30. Those who he predestined, he also called. Those who he called, he also justified. Those who he justified, he also glorified. Paul has already made very clear that justification is based on faith alone. And so those whom he called, they must be those who also exercise faith. And we know that Paul very clearly doesn't mean to say that faith is the basis of our predestination or our calling. In other places, he makes it more explicit. Ephesians 2, 8 to 10, um, where faith is described as a gift of God. Um, I'll just read it. For you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is God's gift. Right? That's referring to the whole package. Salvation, grace, faith. This is a gift of God. And then very explicitly in Philippians chapter 1, um, verse 29, um, for it has been granted to you on Christ's behalf, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him, right? So the act or the ability to believe in Jesus is one that God himself grants to us, right? So we'll stop here, but I hope you've seen that just reviewing Paul, we haven't even looked at the Old Testament, we haven't looked at the Gospels, but in Paul we can see very clearly why um, the Lutheran perspective of justification has been held uh, since the Reformation forward and, and prior to that in the early church, the letter of Diognetus. You can see some of this in Augustine. Um, and I think that the Lutheran perspective on justification is the is the biblical one. It's the Pauline one, but more than that, it's the it's the biblical one. It reflects what the Bible teaches as a whole. So, I'm sorry I went long, but uh, you guys have questions at this point. Okay, um, thanks, Richard, for that talk. I really enjoyed it. Um, the overview of the doctrine of justification. Yeah, we do have questions. So, I guess I can go first with our questions. So, I think recently. Um, I think a big question is that as we progress, right, where there's Euclidism, where everyone's like, you know, we need to unite. Um, the doctrine of justification has taken like a, a secondary role where people claim that it's not a first order doctrine, as you mentioned. So I guess the question that comes naturally from that um, concern is that is the doctrine of justification central to the gospel? Because some people claim that it isn't. Rather, it's um, a secondary, tertiary, 
primary? What do you think, Sir Richard? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think that, as I mentioned earlier, I think it actually is uh, central to the gospel. Now, it's not the whole gospel, right? So I think this is where there's some uh, confusion where people who are rightly, who rightly prize the doctrine of justification, they sometimes aren't super clear and maybe they uh, misspeak and they, they almost suggest that the doctrine of justification is itself the gospel. And that's not quite correct, right? The gospel includes other promises, other wonderful benefits um, on top of justification, right? So the promise of the spirit, the promise of adoption, uh, the promise of a future inheritance, the establishment of God's kingdom on earth, uh, the elimination of, of actual evil, uh, like all of those are promises of the gospel. They're part of the gospel. Um, however, where those who prize justification are correct is in saying that justification is a foundational piece to the gospel and that if we distort our understanding of justification, uh, if we distort it badly enough, we do actually lose the biblical gospel. And the reason I say this is because this, I think this is what Paul says um, in the book of Galatians in particular. Um, Paul is very animated and he says, you know, if any other, if anyone else, if any other apostle comes, if an angel from heaven comes and preaches a different gospel to you, right? Let him be anathema, let him be cursed, right? So what's he saying? If anyone brings you any other gospel, and he's alluding to a situation in the churches with Galatia at that time, right? He's not just saying this like purely hypothetical, right? He's saying no other gospel than the one that I delivered to you is to be accepted, no matter who it is who says it. And when he actually unpacks what he means by that, he focuses in on justification because that was the issue in the churches in Galatia at that time. There were people who were telling those who were converted under Paul's ministry, right? There are these, uh, they're called the Judaizers, right? They're coming and saying that on top of faith in Jesus, you actually need to be a Jew. You need to accept the works of the law in order to be justified. You need to be circumcised. Um, so Gentiles, right? Talking about Gentiles who trust in Jesus, that's not enough, right? Trusting in Jesus is not enough. You need to do that. But on top of that, you also need to be circumcised, you need to become part of the Jewish people. And Paul sees that as a threat to the gospel because it's a misunderstanding of justification, right? So what that implies, what that suggests is that if we distort, right, our understanding of justification, then according to Paul, we compromise the gospel itself. Right. You get the same idea from Romans chapter 1, verses 16 to 17, right? which we talked about, um, where um, Paul says that he's not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God and the salvation for those who believe, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed. Right. So what's he saying? He's not ashamed of the gospel, because the gospel is the means through which God saves. How is it the means through which God saves? It's the means through which God saves because it is actually the revelation of the gift of God's righteousness, right? Which is what justification is all about. So all that to say, 
while it would be going too far to say that justification is like the center of theology or to say that justification is the gospel itself, it's not going too far to say that justification is a central component of the gospel, is a foundational part of the gospel, and that distortions of justification are distortions of the gospel. Okay, thank you for the answer, Richard. And we'll move on to the second one, which is, is the doctrine of justification worth dividing over? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, yes, the short answer is uh, yes. Um, if given how important it is to, to the gospel, given that Paul was willing to say that even if an angel from heaven came to you and preached another gospel, and by that he means a gospel that differs with regard to justification, right? At least in Galatians, that's what Paul means. There are other ways of distorting the gospel, but in Galatians, that's what he means. If even an angel from heaven were to come and distort the doctrine of justification, Paul Paul's answer is, let that angel be cursed, right? I think Paul would clearly view uh, justification as a doctrine worth dividing over. Uh, it was a doctrine you know, over which Paul was willing to confront Peter over and rebuke him, you know, to his, and uh, in, in, in very strong words and very strong language. Um, and Galatians 2, 11 to 14, Paul recounts that incident. Um, so yes, um, I would say that the reformers were correct. Um, this was not the only issue between, you know, during the Protestant Reformation, um, but it was one of the chief issues and um, it, it's, it was very sad that the, the Catholic Church at that time had so departed from uh, the gospel that this was necessary, but it was necessary. And it is a wonderful grace of God that the Reformation happened and that um, the biblical doctrine of justification um, was made central once more. Um, and I think that today for us, I think application would be uh, that no matter what a church might offer, no matter what a church, you know, all the bells and whistles that a church might, might have, other reasons why a church might be attractive, if the church, if a church preaches a gospel that does not attest to justification by faith alone, you shouldn't go to that church. Um, you know, you should be kind to people you should um you know pray for people um hopefully have opportunities to explain to people what the true gospel is um but um yeah this doctrine is definitely um, like i said it's of first order importance so for our next question paul why must sinners still pray for forgiveness yeah that's a great question there are a couple different ways of looking at it um at the most basic level the reason we should do it is because jesus instructed us to right that's your most most basic level even if we don't understand um you know and there are going to be some folks who um, are not as theologically minded they don't quite understand and they might be confused at the most basic level we should still do it 
simply because Jesus instructed us to. He instructed us to pray this way, right? When he talked about the Lord's Prayer. Um, but in terms of theologically accounting for how we can be have a righteous status before God and continue to ask God for forgiveness, um, I would say that on the one hand, right, our relationship with God is dynamic, right? We are in a relationship or we are we have fellowship with the true and living God who is a person, right? And so our fellowship with God, right, while it is secure, our fellowship with God is still dynamic, right? The things that we do, the things that we say, um, they can impact not our legal standing before God, but they do impact the quality of our fellowship with God, the dynamic, the relationship uh, between us and God. Uh, we can fall under God's fatherly discipline, right, for our sins. And so by confessing our sins, um, by asking God for forgiveness, we're simply living out that relationship or that fellowship with God. Um, also, I would just say that confessing our sins is an expression of faith, right? When, what it means for a sin, still sinful person to have faith in God means that we must confess that our sins are displeasing to him, that when we do things that are disobedient or not in keeping with his commands, his character, uh, part of our faith means necessarily that we acknowledge those things, um, that we um, agree with him, with his assessment of our actions, with his assessment of our character. Um, and so the reason why we should still ask God for forgiveness is because that's what faith looks like in this period where we're still uh, we're still sinful. Um, and if a person never asked God for forgiveness, um, that would call into question whether or not they truly believed, right? Uh, whether they truly believed God's assessment of their character, whether they believed that God is the righteous judge of all the world, um, whether they truly believe that they're sinners, which is necessary for us to be justified, right? Or it's necessary for us to, for us to trust in Jesus for our justification. We actually have to believe that there's a need for that. Um, that we are sinful and that's what kind of asking forgiveness is an expression of and we we do so with the firm confidence that because of Christ God actually will forgive us of our sins right so first uh, John 1 9 um, right um, if you if you confess your sin he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness right that's talking about um, kind of daily life that's not talking so much about this status this legal status before god that's talking about um this dynamic fellowship that we have with god um so so yeah so all of those things we should ask god for forgiveness because god instructs us to we should ask god for forgiveness because we want to um we want our fellowship with him to be pleasing to him we want our fellowship to him to be unhindered by our by our sins um, and we want to express our the truthfulness of our faith um, when we sin we acknowledge our sin before God we acknowledge that we need 
his grace. Um, and we do so with um, confidence that uh, in Christ, uh, we can be assured of our forgiveness. So, For our fourth question, how do we practice simul justice at peccator? Are both made right with God and sinner at the same time? Yeah, yeah, that's an interesting question because that's just a kind of a description of the reality, right? It's true of us. Like if you're a Christian, you are simultaneously a sinner and yet justified, right? Now, these are true on different levels, right? Our justification, like our legal status in God's sight is absolutely secure. We are righteous, excuse me, in God's sight. At the same time, we live in what's called the already not yet, right? So we we live in between the times. And what that means is when Jesus came, he inaugurated the kingdom of God, um, but the kingdom of God is not yet consummated. So what that means basically is that this is the age of salvation. This is the age of uh, the reign of the spirit, but the fullness of God's kingdom is still something that is future. And part of that means that even though we now taste of the gifts of God's kingdom, we have the spirit, um, we are now able, we're free from sin in a way that we were not before. We are able to put sin to death and obey God's commands. We're not able to do so perfectly, right? Not yet. The day is coming when Jesus comes again and we're going to be completely conformed to his image. Um, We will not have to wrestle with our sins anymore, right? That day is coming when we will be perfected. Um, But in the meantime, the reality for all of us, for everyone who's a Christian, right, is that they are simultaneously a sinner and yet justified. And so I suppose um, one way that this could be an encouragement to us Um, is that when we stumble into sin, um, which we we want to put sin to death, right? Like John uh, makes very clear the reason that he's writing um, to the people that he's writing to is so that they do not sin, right? Or Paul uh, stresses this um, just as much when he says that, you know, if you... Put, if you don't put the death of deeds of the body, or sorry, if you put the death of deeds of the body, then you will live, right? Um, yes, language in First Corinthians chapter six that those who are unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. So Paul has very big warnings, right, about sinning. So I don't want anyone to walk away from this thinking that it's okay for them to continue in sin uh, because of God's free justification. Um, that's not true. Um, if you don't repent, then you haven't truly believed. Um, so all that being said, right, that's very important to say people people make this mistake often and it's a really tragic one. This is another way of deforming the gospel, right? So all that being said, the necessity of repentance being stressed, when we do sin, it's helpful to be reminded that that is not evidence that you're not a Christian. And it's helpful to be reminded that the Bible's expectation of us is yes, growth in godliness, but it's not perfection. Um, in fact, you know, to, to move to John, right? John makes clear, like, if you claim that you have no sin, then not only are you a liar, but you make God to be a liar. 
Um, and so it's helpful to know that in the midst of your struggle with sin, or even when you do fall into sin, when you commit a sin, that by itself is not evidence that you're not a Christian. That by itself is not evidence that um, you aren't justified before God or you haven't been adopted into his family. Um, now, if you were not, uh, if you had absolutely no conviction over your sin, or if you had no desire to repent of your sin, then that would be evidence that you haven't, or that a person has not genuinely believed in Christ and are not Christians, right? So there's a very important balance here that we need to maintain. Um, repentance is a necessary expression of true and genuine faith. Sinless perfection is not. And uh, there is no Christian this side of heaven who is going to be sinless. And God is gracious and so patient with us. Right? So I wouldn't say it's putting, uh, you know, Simul, uh, what is it? Simul, Eustus, et peccator. Or sorry. I got that mixed up, didn't I? Sim, simul peccator et justus or something, whatever it is. I don't remember the Latin. Um, it's not so much putting it to practice because that's just a description of reality. Um, but that reality can be helpful um, in the midst of our struggles to remind us that this is the normal Christian life for a person to struggle with sin, seek to put sin to death by the power of the Spirit when stumbling to confess faith in Christ anew, to throw ourselves on Christ anew, to ask God for forgiveness because of what Christ has done, and to expect because of God's grace, because of what Christ has done, um, to know that God will forgive us, um, and he has forgiven us, and that he will uh, complete the work that he started in us. Thank you very much, Pastor Richard, or Sir Richard, for this wonderful opportunity. <laughs> to have this podcast recording. Uh, we all know that uh, you have a busy schedule <laughs> and your work opportunities and in family. Uh, on behalf of my co-hosts here in Truth of the Matter, we'd like to deeply appreciate all that you've done in choosing to join our podcast episode today. On behalf of Nathan, Sam, and Jake. So with that, we'd like to thank you all for those who listened to this second episode of Ordo Salutis or Order of Salvation. And if you haven't, uh, kindly subscribe and follow our Facebook page and like and also share it with your family and friends because our goal here in Truth of the Matter is to uphold Christian doctrine not only in head knowledge or by the words of Pastor Brandel Manalastas, not to be armchair, armchair theologians, but most importantly to apply it into our heart and minds in Christ Jesus. With that, thank you very much for this episode, for watching, and see you all next week. God bless us all. Bye, everyone.